I'm Dave Binocco, the Allenmeyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In the months of November and December, we have angled the lens of our reconnect and reset theme on relationships. We've looked at how the pandemic impacted the relationships in our lives and explored how members of Parish's first graduating class connected with one another in the dynamic days of the founding of Parish Episcopal's upper school. This month, our two episodes shift the focus to the parent-child connection. Parenting has always been complicated business, perhaps the most difficult task an adult confronts. If blessed, we can serve in our role as parents for 50 years or more. The dimensions of the parenting challenge continually shift as the parent and child each move through different stages of their lives. As the parent-child relationship unfurls over time, its dynamic nature presents complicated shifts in chemistry, pressure points, and opportunities. Add multiple children to the scenario, and one understands why parenting can be so confounding. Today, parents in high-achieving communities face an external set of challenges which compound the complexity of the parenting calculus. The world moves quickly. Opportunities to position our children for success feel scarce, soaked in competition. That our children will lead as rich and full a life as we have just doesn't seem as assured. Of course, the pandemic has added a layer to this uncertain environment. During the last 19 months, parents have spent more time with their children, serving simultaneously as homebound employees and as parents and teachers to their children. As we emerge from the pandemic and students have returned to campus-based instruction full-time, parents harbor concerns that the pandemic-induced interruption to their children's education has left their youngsters behind or off pace. To unpack the naughty realities of the parent-child connection pre- and post-pandemic, we are fortunate to have with us on today's episode one of the country's leading voices on vulnerability, resilience, and mental illness among children living in high-achieving, pressured communities. Dr. Sonia Luthar is president, Professor Emerita at Columbia University's Teachers College, from which yours truly earned his master's degree, and she is the co-founder of Authentic Connections company. She has spent two decades researching the challenges of caregiving and child rearing in these complicated times. We are so fortunate to have her with us on the From My Angle podcast. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Sonia Luther. Well, welcome back to the From My Angle podcast. I'm so glad to have you here as we wrap up the 2021 episode year here in November and December. We've been looking at our reconnect and reset theme, focusing on relationships and how the pandemic has impacted them in our lives. We've explored how members of Parish's first graduating class connected with one another, the dynamic days of the upper schools uh, starting in 2007. And we've spent time with Kelly Jamison thinking about how we are interacting with one another now that we've come out from the shadows of pandemic um, uh, hideouts and quarantining. But I wanted to move in this last couple episodes of the 2021 year to the relationship between parent and student, and specifically to begin to think about how that connection exists in today's challenging construct of 
competitive school environments, but also how the pandemic has informed that reality. And I am so glad to have Dr. Sonia Luther with us. She is an individual who I've followed and admired for her work and research over the many past years. And uh, will be speaking to us uh, quite a bit about her research on the challenges of caregiving and child rearing in these complicated times. So Dr. Luther, thank you for joining us in the From My Angle podcast. We're so glad to have you. So my pleasure. Thanks, David. Thanks for taking the time. So I like to have our guests uh, forego sometimes the more traditional introductions just to share with our listeners how they identify themselves with meeting someone for the first time. So how does Dr. Luther most like to identify? Mom, researcher, teacher, mentor? How do you uh, step into a group? There are two, two I guess, uh, definitions, like a neck and neck, uh, mom and scientist, scientist and mom. Those are the two that come to mind immediately. That's a great one. I didn't even think about scientists, but that uh, that, that uh, is certainly what you spent a lot of your time doing. And before we get into your research, let's let's start with your present work with this nonprofit you've co-founded called Authentic Connections, obviously fits and aligns with our theme of reconnected reset quite well. So t- tell us about uh, what you do with Authentic Connections. So we actually have to, it's a little confusing. There are two uh, organizations, if you will, that I'm founder of. The nonprofit is the first one which came about in about 2015 or so we started it. Um, We now call that AC Groups, just to distinguish it from the other one, which is Authentic Connections. So Authentic Connections Groups is a nonprofit that is committed to basically supporting parents uh, through the challenges of taking care of their children and themselves, oftentimes their jobs, uh, in challenging, stressful times and conditions, which of course in the pandemic have even got worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the groups have mostly been, they were designed with moms in mind, with professional moms, like moms who are physicians at the Mayo mm-hmm. Clinic, for example, but dads have attended them to admit that done them with fathers as well. And the premise is very simple, Dave, it's really all about love. It's all about mm-hmm. acceptance so that if you expect or want a parent to provide unconditional acceptance, uh, which of course we do, to their children, you have to make sure that that parent themselves are receiving that you can't give that which you don't get Mm. so the first step is to say how are you doing and not Mm. self-care not take care of yourself but uh, prioritize being taken care of prioritize Mm -hmm. receiving the same unconditional acceptance that you want to give to your children make sure that you get that yourself that's the whole premise that the uh, of the the nonprofit of the groups and over time, we've done about, you know, about three, uh, two, three empirical studies, published peer review studies, saying that this thing works. It works, it helps, it improves things for the, for the parents and therefore naturally for how the family is functioning as well. Yeah, there's some amazing videos on your website at, at sonialuther.org um, where you can see um, the uh, uh, groups in process and hear the testimonials from the, the women, some of whom, for example, were um, uh, suffering from postpartum depression and uh, that that notion of coming together with an affinity group of, uh, in, in this case, women, though I know you work with men, but women who are, who are managing some of the same pressures uh, really allowed um, uh, allowed them to find some some peace. And, and uh, I hear you saying that that allows them to parent better when they've taken better, uh, taken care of themselves and their needs first. Yeah, very quickly, I'll tell you, Dave, that this work began when I was still at Yale in the early 2000s. 
a similar set of relational support groups for very different population, substance abusing moms and great poverty and methadone maintenance programs. And with them too, it was the same thing. You treat them with love, respect and affirmation along with parenting issues, not to minimize the challenges they have in that. And there were improvements in their well-being, and also uh, remarkably, Dave, in the <clears throat> children's ratings of their mother's parenting behaviors. We never saw the kids in, in the sessions. So this is really like a proof, if you will, that you help the moms do better, feel better, support them, addressing the parenting challenges, and it gets them, it would, uh, you, you see the effects, not just on mom's well-being, but also on how the kids are seeing the, the mother's, mother's uh, functioning. Are the AC groups beginning to replicate now across the country? Are you seeing some? Are you seeing some distribution out to uh, to cities across the across the country? Is that a hope and aspiration? Yes, there we are, and uh, fortuitously, actually, ran a whole bunch of uh, virtual groups before COVID happened, and we have a manuscript that was published uh, right before COVID, attesting to the success of the virtual format as well as the in-person. In fact, in some cases, I'd say women found it even more uh, conducive or more convenient because there was less travel and you know rushing back and forth, plus anonymity, so right. that. Some women felt that it's easier for me to be talking to someone I don't know rather than the, you know, the, the professor next door or the teacher next door. Um, so, yes, we've managed to replicate, but we're very, very much in the process of trying to grow and spread the word and have people sign up and come and be come and be loved. Well, commendations of that and urge listeners who are interested, again, to go to, to uh, Dr. Luther's website at sonyluther.org. Actually, more, Dave, more I, I, w- yeah. I would send them straight to the, the nonprofit, which is huh. acgroups.org. Fantastic. acgroups.org is an, another place for excellent resource. And, and of course, we wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the life of parents and children in, in high-pressured um, uh, environments like independent schools, like, like parish. Yeah. But what's interesting, you know, even as you cite the origin of your research around the support group for for these these women, is that you're a bit of an accidental tourist into our environment because your research and and science was really done around high risk, high vulnerable populations initially, and you somewhat accidentally came to realize that it's actually children in schools like mine and in high pressured communities <laughs> across the country yeah. that are at risk. And so you you stumbled into it uh, somewhat uh, somewhat unintendedly. And I found your research maybe six or seven years ago. I was an independent school leader who who realized that we were getting lopsided and out of balance in the school experience. I wanted to figure out as uh, the educational philosopher Will Richardson uh, has has said that you know schools shouldn't hurt. And I was like, how can we do college preparatory education? in a way that, you know, as we t- look at time and curriculum delivery and assessment at a, a young school like Parish, we could do it in a way that was healthier and more balanced, but still inarguably college preparatory. And I bumped into a report of yours, I think it was around 2013, mm-hmm. um, a, a paper that your team had written called I Can, Therefore I Must, right? Which was essentially the words that I could see our kids, you know, saying, I I can do it. And so I must do it. I can take the extra AP. I can do the extra service event. I can do the next co-curricular to make my resume better. Um, And you titled this fragility in the upper middle classes. Tell us about the key findings of what I found to be an incredibly compelling uh, and relevant to my experience in independent schools study in 2013. Yeah. There's an update to that paper in 2019 in the American Psychologist, uh, Dave, but the essence is, if you, if you think, think of the child and family here, the pressure to perform and achieve 
is the proximal risk factor of you. That's the thing that is bugging everybody. How can I do better? How can I uh, perform better and so on? It is not just the children, but it is us, the parents equally. So where do these pressures come from? The children feel it themselves, the peers, you know, what did you get? Are you on the starting team? So on the community is watching, how far are you getting? What are the standardized test scores? Uh, you know, are you, is the lacrosse team winning and so on? So this is, uh, and then of course the universities and these um, mm -hmm. uh, rankings that people publish and the kids saying, well, I want to go to the top 25 or tops of 15 and so on. So there's a multiplicity of factors that all collude coming together in affecting not just the kids, but us too. One of the things I have great trouble with is people basically parent bashing and saying, if it weren't for the parents of these schools, well, the parents are the ones who are pushing, the parents are the ones who are, well, no, it's not just, yes, we do sometimes get a little bit over the top saying, I want my child to have a terrific education, like I have by the grace of God, uh, the good fortune of having. That doesn't mean that we are the single lone cause. Well, there's, as I just said, teachers, educators, society, universities, everything, not to mention the increased competition that has gone on with globalization. So in this 2019 paper, we sort of talk about all of these factors and how it's simple-minded and wrong to try and place the blame, if you will, on squarely on any one of these uh, sets of factors. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the somewhat depressing systemic nature of this in a few minutes and we talk about, are there any solutions to really change this? But I, I wanted to circle back to, were you surprised when you were looking at vulnerability and at-risk population of young people? Were you surprised when you found these results around actually well-resourced yeah. students in high-pressured schools, public or private, actually being as as bad off or at, at, as at risk as someone who we fit the category we might normally describe it as, which is to say low income, under-resourced school, et cetera. How surprised were you? Tell me about that revelation. Candidly, I was surprised and to, to the point that it took three or four or five different studies that I did and replicated. I said I was a scientist. Till I started even beginning to believe this to is believe something it. that is real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, up to that point, I said this couldn't be because maybe it's one town, maybe it's just a fluke finding. But I think by about the, I'd say the early 2000s, about 2005, six, we got enough studies saying the same thing in different, at the time, uh, mostly public, but also some independent schools, all with the same characteristics. We are the good schools, we're the good test scores, where our kids go to good colleges. Uh, and it, it, so it was pretty clear at that point that this is real. And as time has gone on, the problems have just got worse. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I started my school career, leadership career in the mid 90s. And so, you know, your revelations and your study and your science in the early 2000s juxtapositions with my in the trenches experience of how the texture of our schools you know, began to change as we loaded up curriculum with AP courses and we began to spread students excessively thin on both the academic side, but the co-curricular and extracurricular side mm -hmm. when uh, community and, and college and parent pressures began to push them to this multiplicity of resume building activities uh, and the pace of our schools became, you know, just ferociously fast. Um, and so thinking about what like push the snowball over the hill is a really interesting retrospective question for me. And I know that it's not simply answered. There are multiple factors that have, that have driven it. Uh, but clearly I think it is the monster with which we all wrestle at the moment as educators and parents is how to prepare our kids and how to, and how to 
do it in a way that it, it makes and helps them be well, because this is the dilemma parents face. We want our kids to be successful, but we want them to thrive. And sometimes very often these are, these are competing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you think about this competition to see the pursuit of success and wellness, what has your research shown is the impact on the well-being of the parent, the student, and then the parent-student relationship. Let's go to all three buckets. So let's start with the parent. What do you? What is research showing you that parents are struggling uh, with? How does it manifest in parents today? Well, obviously, there's a great deal of anxiety in terms of you know what, where, where will my child get to? The standard of living, maintaining your parents' standards of living now is more difficult than it was you know, uh, a generation ago. So that's a reality. Things are harder to come by. Competition is greater. Getting into the same universities is much more difficult than it used to be. So there is a very real anxiety there. Um, Dave, the one thing I do want to say is we need to take a good, hard, gentle, but firm look at ourselves and understand what our own values truly are. In one of our papers with my colleague, uh, Lucia, uh, we, we looked at parents' values are basically emphasizing status and achievement. This is the kid's perception, right? My mom really values status and achievement, getting good grades, more so than decency, integrity, and so on. And when the kids see that both parents overemphasize achievements at the cost of, because it's one or the other, you can't choose both. When there's an overemphasis on achievements, the kids are more depressed and anxious and substance using and have poorer grades. So it's actually backfiring. I'm saying all this to say that if you want your child to be okay, you have to be okay with who you are, who they are. Maybe they'll be excellent at geometry or algebra or lacrosse. Maybe they'll be middling. Maybe that's not their thing. How comfortable are you yourself saying? How comfortable are you saying, well, maybe I will not be a full professor. Maybe I will not get that big grant. Maybe I will not be famous, but it's okay. That yeah. is a question we need, to, we need to grapple with. As the grown-ups, the kids are watching us. Kids do what they see, not what we yeah. tell them to do. Yeah, that's such a good point. And student, uh, the student impact of this has been clear. We see that suicide is the second leading cause of death of college students presently. Anxiety levels of students in schools uh, like mine and other high-achieving schools um, are, are high. This, there's data um, all over the place. And I suspect then that the relationship between uh, child and parent, right, has been uh, in many instances, not all, but in many fractured as the parent tries to figure out what their values are. And the student is uh, under the hot, intense light of parent scrutiny, worried about where whether their child's going to be successful or not. What are you seeing in the relationship dynamic between parent and child in today's context? So we make an analogy with the, I started studying inner city kids and families, as you know, so it's a context specific task for inner city moms, which is make sure your child is not hanging out at at dusk on street corners, make sure your child is physically safe. In the same way, Dave, in our context, we have our culture specific task, and that is to make sure that we keep our kids somewhat insulated from this reverberating crescendo of a message that comes to them from their grade two or grade one or from kindergarten onwards. But how are you doing and how far have you gotten? How well are you doing? So our task is to even bend over backwards. In that same study that I told you about, the kids who are doing best were the ones who's both who saw both parents as being more uh, valuing of integrity and decent and low on 
achievement and status. So the, the, the think of it like this is a tidal wave coming toward the kids of do more, do more, do more, because you, you can. Parents have to be that much more the force of restraint and balance and saying doing is good, but never at the cost of your health. We don't yeah, want and the parent and the parent hears that and they nod their head and they know it in their hearts, but their logic brain tells them I'm falling short. I'm, I'm not serving my student well. They're falling behind. And so this is the thing. The amygdala of the parent is just so frightened, you know, even if the heart is saying, yes, balance. I want to be gentle with my child, but then I'm letting them off the hook or I'm not holding up the high enough expectation. And this is the noise that I think the that um, in some cases consumes the homes of our families as parents and students try to find some common ground. I so, refer to it often as parents these days, they parent by proxy or they're comparative parent, they parents, right? So by proxy means like, well, what are they doing? If Johnny's taking, if Johnny's taking the select soccer uh, lessons four times a week, you know, I, I we need to do the same. It's comparative or proxy parenting, right? If that student's taking all those APs, my child needs to do it, you know? A lot of what you're saying, Dave, you think about it, spells insecurity, right? Yeah. Don't just say spells insecurity of the parents. Now, when a child is insecure, what do you want? You want someone to show them up and make, us a, make them feel like they're a worthwhile human being. It's the same principle for us. And hence these groups, these authentic connections groups that I do for moms, it's essentially someone like myself saying, Oh God, I feel like a miserable failure as a mom. I feel like my kids don't like me or they're not doing well or oh, I just feel wretched and horrid. It is coming and getting that embracing, that holding, that comforting reassurance, not falsely, always, you know, honestly, but that gentleness. That is what brings us back to center. Mm -hmm. There's no mystery here. Mm -hmm. The National Academies of Science has said this unequivocally, Dave. If you want children to do well, you have to make sure that their primary caregivers are doing well. And that happens by making sure that that primary caregivers on an ongoing basis receives love and support. It's yeah, the same it's principle. And, and it's somewhat the counterintuitive principle, like on the airplane, when they tell you to take the oxygen before you give it to your kid. <laughs> and it seems like, whoa, wait a second, I'm supposed to save my kid. I'll make it, I'll, I will make it, I will make it even more counterintuitive, Dave. It's not put on your own mask before your kids. I say, make sure you have someone to put on your mask for you, because mm. we can also be gasping. Mm. And God knows now at this stage in COVID, many of us have been in our gasping. Yeah, I love that. So how, I don't know if you've run any research studies on this to this point of, of the competitive environment, which was in place before the pandemic, but how has post-pandemic or emergent from pandemic context informed this anxiety, made it worse? Is it essentially the stable in these high pressure communities? What what are you sensing if you don't have the research behind it, just instinct? Oh, we do have the research. So as I said, the nonprofit does the work of supporting moms and educate done a lot of groups for counselors and school heads and so on and mm -hmm. so forth, shoring up those of you that are pillars of mental health of the community. Mm -hmm. But the other authentic connections of company, which does a school-based work, we found that the rates of serious depression, anxiety, from 2019 before COVID actually went down from 2019 to uh, right after schools had mandatory closures. The kids had a, you know, more freedom, less early mornings and less running around like crazy. Grades went to pass fail from letter grades. So pressure was overall decreased. So it went down from 2019 to right after the mandatory closure. And from then on started climbing. We're now back to 2019 rates, if not higher. And these data you can look at the other website, which is called Authentic Connection, uh, uh, authcon.com.
Amazing. In the midst of a hundred year global pandemic, our kids' mental health got better. It's essentially. <laughs> well, we gave them some time off. It's like having a multiple, you know, several snow days in a row. That's what it felt like initially. And I then know. Don't know. This is this is real. This is yeah. not good. This is not going away. And that's why it's not getting it's not getting bad again. So we we got at this a little bit previously, you uh-huh. know, with this idea of everybody looking around and wanting to affix blame, right? So there are parents that want a school like mine to fix it. There are teachers or educator leaders who want to blame, as you were suggesting earlier, parents for being, you know, too pushy and, mm-hmm. and too in the weeds of the of their child's business. Uh, we like me, I love the point of blame at the colleges because I think their admission system is is the tail wagon, you yeah. know, wagging the dog. And I've had on David Gleason, who wrote a tremendous book called At What Cost on the podcast. We've had Denise Post from Challenge Success at Stanford, uh, Julia Cut Hames all these leaders who are thinking about this problem, they've all taught me essentially what you reinforced today, how systemic this is. It is multifarious. It is not one source or cause of this, which makes the rewiring of the high pressure achievement focused culture uh, so difficult. So I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but am I missing a solution path for how to return to some sense of balance and sanity in college preparatory education besides taking care of the parent caregiver and their values or, or not? Like what, what, what else do you have to offer? Well, there's not going to be a single answer to this because the, the problems are multifaceted. And yet I don't want to be evasive and say, well, so many things are important. I will say starting at the micro level at home, for moms and dads, caregivers to make sure that, as I said, they are loved, come and get the support if you're not getting it. Same thing for school leaders and counselors and nurses and so on. So make sure at your own level that you have this in place. This is what resilience rests on relationships. Know that there's no other answer. If you want kids and people to do well, they have to have this. That's at the micro level. Then you look at the community level, Dave. And when we do our work with the school-based surveys at Authentic Connections, Oftentimes, I'll come and talk to parents or to faculty. I find myself saying this thing very often. Any decision a school leader makes these days is going to elicit a lot of anger from some subgroup of people, and very vocally so. Tell me I'm wrong about that. No, people are just fried. Everybody's so stressed, right? <laughs> right? There's a lot of anger going. And think of what that's doing to the fabric of our, our society, our communities. So from the home and school level, we start thinking the community level and have name the problems, assess them, always unassigned, assess them, say what's going right, what's not going right. Once we figure out where the problem areas are, if you will, and not everything's going to be a problem, something's over, then we start talking about them as uh, all the stakeholders, the parents, the faculty and staff, and the students. So that's now this level. And then keep advocating at the policy level, saying that this is not one, it's not Paris School, it's not Wilton, Connecticut, it's not Los Angeles. This is a systemic thing that affects Mm -hmm. maybe at least a third of the kids and families, all of whom are in that high achieving or upwardly aspiring category. So there are three different levels, just to summarize. The local level, do your homework, make sure that your shop is in order in terms of people being being loved. Then the community level, minimize strife and anger everywhere you possibly can. And then at the the more national global level, say there are some policy issues that we really have to be addressing and get higher education involved in these conversations. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I love a framework and because a framework's hopeful. So I appreciate you sharing it. You know, like it at least gives us a way to, to take a, a big gnarly problem and begin to sense that there's a way to, to, to scale our, our way around it and, and come out on the other side um, whole. You know, I, I thought about in closing any other recommendations you have for parents, but my goodness, you, you've been so clear. You know, I, I think we as parents have to be vulnerable enough to say when we are are not well and seek the help to restore that, ourselves. That, that right there, and we value clear, right? I, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you there because that there you hit the nail on the head. Yep. Too many of us have too many issues about saying I'm hurting, help me. Not even I'm flailing, but just I'm sad, and I just need the metaphoric hug. So I would say just at least begin there. Go to mm-hmm. acgroups.org. I'm not, I sound like a salesperson here, but you know what? I'm not making any money off this. It's a science-based program. It works. It's recommended. Come and do it and give yourself that gift of being loved. So once you do that, children watch. They take from you. They benefit. Your whole community starts to benefit. It's science. Simple. Yeah, I think it is. And it's something that's compelling, as you mentioned, your work with through um, authentic community, um, authentic community connections, yeah. that you're also working with schools, yes. for schools like Parish to think about how we partner with you to bring in um, training for those that can lead these AC groups and, yeah. um, and, and help provide a, a, a local um, uh, um, kind of affinity group for parents that want to have these have these conversations. So, Definitely. Uh, Definitely. I, I so I so appreciate it. Uh, and again, your website, which I which I referenced, is so valuable. Uh, SonyaLuther.org. Put it in the show notes for you because you can go through the 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 multifarious links that have tremendous articles. One from the Washington Post uh, several years ago that uh, uh, chronicles and and speaks to some of Dr. Luther's uh, research and. Uh, some excellent pieces, one from CBS Morning News. It was just on um, not more than a month or two ago in which you were you were part of the um, uh, voices that are speaking there. So multiple websites we'll put out here for you to, to use, but uh, such a thrill to get to talk with you and, and so thankful for your time uh, to share with our audience and our community here at Parish. And I hope we'll come and assess your community as well, the students, and do our uh, high TV school survey. Come back and say, so what's going well and what's not, and have these conversations together collaboratively, saying how could we make things better for our children who are under so much strain right now. Yes, thanks for offering your resource. We so appreciate it. All right, Dave. Pleasure talking to you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, the final one for 2021, we will conclude our look at parent-child connection with guest Matt Feeney. Matt is a writer and the author of Little Platoons, A Defense of Family in a Competitive Age, which I had a chance to read last summer and found most provocative Matt has written essays on culture and politics for The New Yorker Online, Slate, and other publications. His most recent article from The New Yorker Online opined on the decision of elite colleges like Amherst to pull back from favoring legacies in their admissions process. Matt has taught high school English and political philosophy at universities such as Duke, George Washington University, Texas A&M, and Frederick Alexander University in Erlanger, Germany. Conversation with Matt will be an interesting one, a terrific way to conclude the first half of this season's episodes in our Reconnect and Reset theme. So until then, thanks for listening to the From My Angle podcast.